It damn well hurts. Certainly it hurts. Well, what's the trick then? The trick, William Potter, is not minding that it hurts. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today is a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior, my lovely wife Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. (laughs) On this week's episode, Nakia and I are heading over to Chicago's Music Box Theater for a big screen 70mm viewing of David Lean's 1962 epic Lawrence of Arabia. And Nakia, we've got a four-hour movie (laughs) to watch and discuss this week. Mm -hmm. I read an interesting stat that the 70-millimeter film, the actual physical film of Lawrence of Arabia, is nearly five miles long. Wow. So, with five miles of film to discuss, I think we should just jump right into it this week without a lot of prefacing or preliminaries. Yes. So, what do you know about Lawrence of Arabia? So, I've never uh, seen the film, obviously... I know the sort of basic outline of the actual man, um, T.E. Lawrence, who I believe was like a British intelligence officer mm-hmm. who was, you know, initially acting on behalf of the British Empire. But then I think there were some complications of some of the sort of tribes that he came into contact with, but against uh, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Right. right. During World War One. excuse me. Um, that is about it. I've never read... What is it? Seven? Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Yeah. I've never read that, so, <laughs> so that's all I know. Okay, so yeah, the film is primarily based upon Lawrence's autobiographical memoir, mm-hmm. Seven Pillars of Wisdom. How historically accurate and or self-aggrandizing that memoir was is something biographers and historians are still debating to this day. But there's no doubt this was an interesting guy. This was a man Winston Churchill eulogized as one of the greatest beings alive in our time. Mm. I do not see his like elsewhere, Churchill said, and I fear whatever our need, we shall never see his like again. A character in the film describes Lawrence as a poet, a scholar, a mighty warrior, and the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the real T.E. Lawrence after we watch it and about the historical context of the story, but I'm not a biographer or an historian, and I don't particularly care about historical accuracy. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the movie. This was a big story with big themes about a larger-than-life figure, and it found its perfect director in British master David Lean. I mean, this is a man whose name is practically synonymous with prestige epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lean's relatively sparse filmography, which also includes such films as Brief Encounter, Great Expectations, The Bridge on the River Kwai, and Dr. Zhivago, surely puts him somewhere on the shortlist for greatest director of all time. On the British Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest British movies of all time, three of the top five films were directed by David Lean, with Lawrence of Arabia at number three. And part of what makes this movie so amazing is that it never should have worked at all. Mm -hmm. As Roger Ebert wrote, What a bold, mad act of genius it was to make Lawrence of Arabia, or even to think that it could be made. In the words years later of one of its stars, Omar Sharif, If you are the man with the money, and somebody comes to you and says he wants to make a film that's four hours long, with no stars, and no women, and no love story, and not much action either, and he wants to spend a huge amount of money to go film it in the desert, what would you say? 
Steven Spielberg, who credits the film with setting him on his journey to being a filmmaker, calls Lawrence of Arabia a major miracle. And it really kind of is. I mean, this was a film with a forbidding budget shot on an impossible scale in a part of the world that was politically dangerous for filmmakers and physically hostile mm-hmm. to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Though many people urge Lean to shoot in Southern California's desert, which would have been considerably <laughs> easier, Lean was determined to shoot the story where it happened, primarily in Jordan. That was categorically insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, one example of the political problems, producer Sam Spiegel, being Jewish, mm had to travel on a falsified passport even to get to the locations. His passport said he was Anglican. (laughs) Uh, The film's very first shooting location near the Saudi Arabian border was 150 miles away from the nearest water and had not been inhabited since a band of monks abandoned their monastery there in the 7th century. The entire cast and crew, which at times swelled to thousands, were basically camped out in the desert living in tents. Wow. Temperatures were so high in the summer sun that most thermometers couldn't even register them. I, I I can't even begin to grasp the difficulty of shooting in the desert. Even forgetting the heat and the inconvenient location, like being 150 miles <laughs> from water. Just imagine the sand. Yeah, getting into everything. Which had to work its way into every body and every garment and every lens and every piece of machinery. Yeah. And which... This is something Spielberg pointed out in an interview I watched, something I'd never even thought about. But the sand had to be swept to make it clean and pristine between every take. Oh, yeah. Because it would show the tracks of the equipment and the actors. So every time you had to do a new take, apparently they had an army of like 300 Bedouins that swept the sand to make it pristine before every take. It's insane. So it's amazing that Lawrence of Arabia isn't a famous flop. Mm -hmm. You know, one of those mad follies that we hear about as cautionary tales of directorial hubris. But the film not only got made, it triumphed. Commercially, critically, and aesthetically. Adjusted for inflation, Lawrence of Arabia is number 82 overall on BoxOfficeMojo.com's list of the highest grossing films of all time. An artistic masterpiece nestled in among Star Wars, Harry Potter, and Lord of the Rings movies. (laughs) That's the kind of money it made. It was nominated for 10 Oscars and won seven, including score, cinematography, art direction, editing, sound, director, and best picture. Peter O'Toole's embodiment of T.E. Lawrence is generally regarded as one of the greatest performances ever captured on screen, though he lost the Oscar to Gregory Peck's Atticus Finch. Oh, that's in a to tough Kill a Mockingbird. That's a tough race. So I think that should be one of the impossible questions we try to answer after the screening is who we would have given that trophy to. That's, yeah... Can I ask a question? Sure. So in the Omar Sharif quote, he said that there were no stars. So is this Peter considered Peter Toole sort of first? Yeah, Peter Toole had made, I think, a couple of movies. Okay. He'd really only made one movie, uh, like a heist comedy mm-hmm. that he had a significant <clears throat> role in. But yeah, he was virtually unknown. Okay. And in fact, he was not the first choice for this. Uh, Albert Finney was actually hired. Mm-hmm. He was cast. And then he, I think, was fired right before shooting began. Um, I know they looked at Marlon Brando. They looked at Montgomery Cliff. They looked at Anthony Perkins. But they they went with Peter O'Toole. Thank God. <laughs> and also, just to go back to that Omar Sharif quote, when he says there are no women, there are no women. Hmm. There is not a speaking part for a woman in this movie. Mm-hmm. There are a few women on screen in crowd scenes, but there's, right. there's no part for women whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 
Lawrence of Arabia is number three on the British Film Institute's list of the greatest British films of all time, and number five on the American Film Institute's list of the greatest movies of all time. It boasts a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes and a perfect 100% on Metacritic. And to me, part of what makes it a masterpiece is that it's an epic story with startling intimacy. It somehow manages to be a subtle and complex character study of Mm -hmm. this man clad in, you know, the billowing robes of a gigantic spectacle film. Right. As Ebert said, the word epic in recent years has become synonymous with big budget B picture. What you realize watching Lawrence of Arabia is that the word epic refers not to the cost of the elaborate production, but to the size of the ideas and the vision. And I think that's completely true. Ebert also says, you can view it on video and get an idea of its story and a hint of its majesty. But to get the feeling of Lean's masterpiece, you need to somehow, somewhere, see it in 70mm on a big screen. The experience is on the short list of things that must be done during the lifetime of every lover of film. Wow. So that's a bucket list item we are going to check off today. It wasn't on my bucket list, but okay. Wasn't it on your bucket list? It was not, (laughs) to be fair. (laughs) And not to any disrespect of the film. I I am sure it is genius. It just was never, I need to see this in 70 millimeter. I didn't even know that that was a requirement. So glad to have the opportunity. So be honest with me. We are recording this on the weekend of my birthday. If it were not my birthday, would you ever have agreed to go do this? I mean, I've agreed to this whole ridiculous ass idea. Idea, I and know, but this, has is, been your birthday. this is actually, I looked it up, one minute longer than Gone with the Wind. Oh, God. <laughs> well, theoretically, the politics should be better. Um, well, we're that's actually, yeah. British colonialism. <laughs> that's, I take that back. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Peter O'Toole is prettier than... What's her name? Anybody. So, anybody. I mean, he's just, and that's not to diminish him. <laughs> he's a, a brilliant actor, but he's so startlingly pretty. Noel Coward said, or allegedly said, if Peter O'Toole were any prettier, this film would have been called Florence of Arabia. Oh my God. Both he and, um, what's the other one? Paul Newman. There's something yeah. about the, it's just like, you're just very pretty men. Yeah, and I, I don't know what it is. Preternaturally just gorgeous. ridiculously beautiful men. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the only... How long was Malcolm X? I think that's three hours. Three hours and some change. I think that's the longest movie I've ever seen in a theater. Okay. So I would need to check how long. My mom made me go see Passion of the Christ with her. And for some reason I have in my head that that was really long too. I'm sure it was. I never saw that. I never wanted to. (laughs) It was horrifying. Um, So yeah. It's got like an hour and a half of just whipping. Yeah. It's really just. And it's in like Aramaic. It's just sort of ridiculous. Um, But uh, yeah. So Malcolm X is probably the longest film I've actually sat in a theater and watched. So this is going to be a test of endurance for me. It, it is for me, too. And I have, obviously, I've never seen this film in a theater. I haven't seen, I'd have to think if I've seen longer films in a theater. But, you know, I got a bad back. <laughs> music Box has not sit. upgraded to the no, comfy and <laughs> as much as I love, the Music Box is, as I've said on a recent episode, one of America's great movie palaces. It's a beautiful theater. But it has authentically old, old school seats. uncomfortable seats. Yeah. So it'll be, it'll be a challenge. Mm-hmm. But what are you expecting from this experience? I mean, I'm expecting it to be beautiful um, I'm ex- and, and sort of grand. I mean, you have the sort of the landscape of the desert. And I feel like it might be sort of because I don't ever hear whenever people talk about it. I don't necessarily hear a lot about the plot or the narrative of the actual mm-hmm. film. I hear about how beautiful it is and just mm-hmm. how much of a sort of epic spectacle it is. So I'm almost feeling like it's going to be more along the lines of like maybe 2001 was where it was like there isn't 
a lot of necessarily narrative meat there, mm-hmm. but it's just you need to sort of, it's an experience. So like what you talk about is the experience and not necessarily the details of the story. I think that's absolutely right. I think that's a fair comparison. I think it's because for a film as long as it is and with the scale that it has, it doesn't have a lot of plot. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have a lot of action or incidents in it. There isn't a lot of story to yeah. it. But I'm sure it's great. <laughs> You are a Peter O'Toole fan. I do. I think he's brilliant. I love Peter O'Toole, so I'm looking forward to that, absolutely. Um, it, w- it was shocking for me to realize that this is only six years before The Lion in Winter. Really? Yes. So huh. he he looks like an old man yeah. in The Lion in Winter, and here he looks... I would have placed that much later. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I I think it's it's going to be amazing. It really is just a matter of, like, I obviously have the patience of a child, and so it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Any movie that's four hours is like, you need to make those four hours count. Then those better be four amazing hours. As your bladder control. I'm actually good on that. Okay. As long as I'm not, you know, drinking a ton of water or anything, I'm okay. Um, and there's an intermission, right? There is an intermission, but this is another thing with these old theaters is that the bathroom has, right, has yeah, like no, that, yeah. two stalls in it and like 800 people are going to pile out of this theater at intermission. That's a good point. Yeah. So. So, yeah. I'm, yeah. I think the film itself will be amazing. Will I think it's, see, and I sound like a Philistine because I'm like, you need need four hours of this um (laughs) edit david (laughs) scene of the desert got it um so yeah but no i think it's gonna be great okay and according to ebert it's like it's something i'm supposed to do before i die so yeah a religious experience you're going to go have good thing it's a sunday then (laughs) to be fair some black churches it's a four-hour service anyway so yeah there you go so that prepared you for this yeah and i was an usher so i was standing the whole time not fun The good day, the good Sundays was when it was first Sunday because then you got communion and you could have a little snack because otherwise you're just. That counts as a snack? It counts as your little. It, when you're there all day, you are so happy, not only to be receiving the body of Christ, but because it's a snack and you just need something. Your blood sugar is dangerously low. All right. Well, we'll try to stop on the way and get you a sack of communion wafers to <laughs> give you strength through this movie. Thank you. Lawrence of Arabia. The man torn between two civilizations. Lawrence of Arabia, filmed against a canvas of awesome magnificence. Lieutenant Lawrence is not your military advisor, but I would like to hear his opinion. Damn it, Lawrence, who do you take her orders from? From Lord Faisal, in Faisal's tent. Hailing the birth of a new star, Peter O'Toole as Lawrence of Arabia. What was he really like, this controversial figure who became a legend in his own lifetime? He was the most extraordinary man I ever knew. He was a very great man. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. He's also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. What, in your opinion, do these people hope to gain from this war? They hope to gain their freedom. There's one born every minute. They're going to get it, Mr. Bentley. I'm going to give it to them. Lawrence and Lorraine. Together, they made history. Now, a gathering of international stars unfolds the story. Alec Guinness as Prince Faisal. The English have a great 
hunger for desolate places. I fear they hunger for Arabia. Anthony Quinn as Auda Abu Tai. I carry 23 great wounds, all got in battle. 75 men have I killed with my own hands in battle. I scatter, I burn my enemies' tents. I take away their flocks and herds. The Turks pay me a golden treasure, yet I am poor because I am a river to my people. Jack Hawkins as General Allenby. I believe your name will be a household word when you would have to go to the War Museum to find who Allenby was. You're the most extraordinary man I ever met. Leave me alone. Huh? Leave me alone. Jose Ferrer as the Turkish Bay. Your skin is very fair. Also starring Anthony Quayle, Claude Rains, Arthur Kennedy, with Omar Sharif as Ali, and Peter O'Toole as Lawrence. Okay, during the break, Nikki and I watched Lawrence of Arabia. Nikki, I think the first thing we should say is that we deserve a lot of credit for this. We do? Absolutely. Why? We already discussed the four-hour running time and the five miles of film. Mm -hmm. We already discussed the quaint but uncomfortable seats (laughs) at the Music Box Theater. We then arrived to find one more (laughs) slight problem. Not a problem. Bit of a problem. (laughs) The air conditioning was out. Yes. I think it was about 80 degrees outside, Mm -hmm. and if you put... 800 people in a theater, (laughs) the temperature rises a little bit. It was pretty dank in there. So my, this, this sort of tested my cinephilia to the limit. Mm. If you, in fact, if you had been a little more, yeah, fuck this, (laughs) I would have said, let's go home and watch it on the couch. I'm committed to the cause. And we had made a promise that we were going to watch it on 70 millimeter. And I I give you credit for that. Ebert said that that was going to be a life changing experience for us. So we had to, you know, and you had to look at it as, you know, an experience enhancement. We were in the desert with Lawrence. It was like smell-o-vision. It was, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So up front, I, you know, I front loaded this conversation with a lot of masterpiece talk and a lot of Ebert's life changing experience for every film fan Mm -hmm. talk. So I want to level the playing ground a little bit with a couple of reviews from when this movie first came out. Okay. This is Bosley Crowther in the New York Times. Vast, awe-inspiring, beautiful with ever-changing hues, exhausting and barren of humanity, he said. It's harsh. It reduces a legendary figure to conventional movie hero size amidst magnificent and exotic scenery, but a conventional lot of action film cliches. It is, in the last analysis, just a huge thundering camel opera that tends to run down rather badly as it rolls on into its third hour and gets involved with sullen disillusion and political deceit. Okay? Okay. Then this is Andrew Saris writing in the Village Voice. Lawrence is simply another expensive mirage, dull, overlong, and coldly impersonal. Its objective is less to entertain or enlighten than to impress and intimidate. He says, some of its acting and technical effects are interesting, but on the whole, I find it hatefully calculating and condescending. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> so not everyone loved this film. Okay. I've never at, heard at of those people, though. in so. 1962. Mm-hmm. What did you make of it? 
I thought it was good. <laughs> I thought it had some really quite beautiful scenes. Mm-hmm. And the acting, both from Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif, the sort of chemistry that they shared, I thought was actually really sort of powerful. I don't know that it warranted four hours. <laughs> That's probably my only complaint is that I, I don't know that I needed four hours of that story. Do you think any story needs four hours? That is an argument, right? I mean, I mean, you feel like a Philistine because you're you're saying, you know, I need you to edit your artistic vision. <laughs> but for as little dialogue as there was, and for as much sort of character work that was happening, oftentimes on just the faces of mm. the actors, that I think that makes the four hours feel a little long. See, I I kind of agree with you in theory, mm-hmm. but then. I try to imagine what sitting down cut. and right. figuring out what I, I would had that cut same problem, and I couldn't come up with what I would cut. So that's the thing is just like it's obviously exactly how long it's supposed to be, right. and I just am obviously an impatient person. And it could have been the added, you know, issue of we were in a hot theater, and I just wanted to get out of there. And there is, I found online some one of the sites had posted some of David Lean's notes. Mm-hmm. From the editing process, Mm -hmm. and I think it was his back and forth with somebody about what possibly could be cut. And he sort of had the same problem we had. I mean, he he agreed to a few cuts. They were almost all dialogue scenes. Mm -hmm. They were scenes of Lawrence and the British officials in the consulate. Mm Mm-hmm. They were those scenes and, you know, he said, oh, we could possibly cut a little bit here. Everything else he looked at, he was like, yeah, I really, I really don't think we can cut that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think just the vastness of it Mm -hmm. and the length of it is key. I don't think you can cut that. I think it's a very different experience if you start cutting that. Mm -hmm. This is an argument I make about Moby Dick. People say Moby Dick is boring. And there, God knows, there are huge chunks of Moby (laughs) Dick that is just Melville discussing marine biology and stuff. But it's like, it's about a boat voyage. Mm -hmm. It's long. It's boring. That's the experience of being on a ship. Mm -hmm. If you cut all that stuff out and you go from exciting incident to exciting incident to exciting incident, you don't get that same feeling. Right. And I think that's true of this movie. I think that 600-mile trek across the impassable desert, it has to feel long. Right, right. No, I agree. And that's, I mean, and that's the thing. That's why I say I think it's totally on my end that I'm just like, okay, this is long. Um, But again, I wouldn't know what to cut because I don't think anything was superfluous, really. Mm -mm. I just, it just felt long. And maybe that is the point because the trek across the desert is long. And so maybe I'm supposed to be like, okay, let's just come on. Um, So, yeah. But that's my only, I thought it was, I think it's a beautiful film. It was funnier than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Almost in line with like a political satire that you would watch in a lot of ways. Yeah. He is very funny. He's very funny. Very quick. And yeah, so that was surprising. I wasn't expecting it to be funny at all. And I wasn't expecting his character to be so odd. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting character. I mean, he's obviously based on a, a real person. Um, Who was odd. There, <laughs> there seems to be no disagreement about the fact that he was odd. Just like an, just one of those guys that sort of is both charismatic and puts you off. And then there was this sort of, a sort of intentional nod to his sexuality. There was also just a little bit of... Yeah, this is something Ebert talks about. He says, you know, he said the temptation to make Lawrence a traditional, safe... Hero. Matinee idol, mm-hmm. action hero, must have been great. 
And Lean didn't do that. Lean, and uh, this was written by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson, who Michael Wilson, you'll remember, was the guy when we talked about Planet of the Apes that Mm -hmm. had been blacklisted. Mm -hmm. And he made a lot of movies while he was blacklisted. This, his name was actually on. He was the second writer on this. But yeah, they didn't do that. And all that weird stuff about Lawrence is in there Mm -hmm. if you want to read not too far beneath the surface. Right. I mean, Lawrence was apparently... You know, there's a lot of speculation that he was gay. No evidence has ever turned up that he had a sexual relationship with another human being. Mm. So he may have been asexual. Mm -hmm. They have unearthed a lot of evidence that he was sadomasochistic, Mm. specifically masochistic. Wow. Um, There's stuff in his letters about how he paid somebody to beat him with a stick, stuff like that. And that is all in this film, not very far beneath the surface. Yeah, that's interesting. Even just his his loving of pain in right. those early scenes where he keeps burning the match and they ask Putting him... Putting it out with his finger. What's the trick? And he says, the trick is not minding that right. it hurts. Well, and then the scene later where he's captured... Yeah, that's, that's the big scene, right? And they beat him and I think the implication is that he's then raped. Yeah, which according to his memoirs, he was. Mm-hmm. And again, there are apparently no two biographers or historians can agree on anything about this guy. Mm -hmm. So there are people who say that whole incident never happened. He was never in that town, but whatever that, that was his story that he was captured and tortured and and raped. Mm -hmm. And the movie is a lot franker about that than I would expect it to be, Mm. especially for 1962. I mean, that guy, the Jose Ferrer's, the Turkish Bay, the character is called is super creepy. Very creepy. And pretty overt, he was, you know, strips his shirt off and says, oh, you have such fair skin. Right, and starts and, like pinching his nipples and yeah. things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when we think about the sort of idea of heroes, particularly war heroes. And when we look at, you know, a figure like James Bond, who was the sort of symbol of British colonialism. Right, right. And he is all heterosexual, you know, hyper-masculinity. Mm-hmm. And then you have a character like Lawrence who is, you know, actively working on behalf of the British army and colonial interests in the Middle East. And he's this sort of, just he's just odd, like such an odd character and he's sort of clumsy mm-hmm. and not, you know, debonair and smooth in that way, like the just genius war hero, but he is a genius war hero and right. that he's very good at strategy and he's very good at the sort of diplomacy, but he then becomes this sort of messianic figure. Right. And to some extent starts working against British, British colonial right, interests. Right. Or appearing to appearing anyway. To, I mean, yeah. I think that's one of the interesting questions, both about the movie and about the real man, mm-hmm. is to what extent he did, as a character in the film says, go native. Right. Or whether that was all an act to get the tribes on his side. Right. I mean, yeah, the more generous reading is that he was advancing the British agenda in the hopes that he would be able to sort of carve out this space for an Arab state that they would have ownership over. And, you know, right. Well, well, that was the, I mean, the British government did not want an Arab state, a united Arab state. Right. They liked the the fragmentation of Mm -hmm. it. They wanted to split up the entire region with the French. And I mean, the plan was never to set the Arabs free. It was to, get rid of the Turks and put it under European control, which is what happened, Mm -hmm. leading the way for another century of distrust and discord and outright warfare. That's usually how colonialism works out. Yeah, funny that. Yeah. Well, so what about that? What about this movie? I mean, I think you were afraid going into it that it would be a colonialist film. Mm -hmm. Is it? Because I don't think it is. 
I don't think it is. Um, I think, if anything, it's an anti-colonialism film. I don't know that I would go so far as to say it's anti-colonialist. I think it's... I mean, it's it sort of... I sort of go back to that idea of a political satire, and those tend to be sort of... Very sort of democratic in their critique. Like mm-hmm. The absurdities of both sides. Right, right. Um, everybody's awful. Everybody's and, awful. Yeah. <laughs> the system is broken. So I, I, I lean more towards that than it being sort of straight anti-colonialist. One of the first things Lawrence says when he meets um, Sharif Ali, Omar Sharif's character, mm-hmm. this is after Sharif Ali has shot the, the guide, guide right. that, had, that was taking Lawrence through the desert. He basically says that Arabs, you know, are basically it's like a stupid people, that they fight yes. tribe against tribe, yeah. that they're little people, they're greedy and they're barbarous and they're cruel. And there are, there are a few times throughout the film where that sort of sentiment creeps in of just like, these are people that couldn't govern themselves. Yeah, well, yeah. Even it, if it doesn't creep to. in. It right. rides I mean, in it, on yeah. a herd of camels at the end. Right. Once they've taken uh, Damascus, Damascus. And they try to set up the Arab Council. The Arab Council. And it's just complete chaos yeah. and infighting. And they can't, you know... They're good at the business of war. They're not good at the business of governing. Right. And then you have Allenby and Prince Faisal. Right. At the dignified grown-ups table, basically saying, okay, we're going to do this treaty between Britain and France. Mm-hmm. And we're, this is how we're going to carve up the Middle East and we'll be done with it. Yeah. So I think it's sort of a both end. Yeah. Fi- Faisal became king of Iraq. Yeah. Out of this. Mm-hmm. And his brother became the king of Jordan. Right. Out of this. But no, you're right, and I think that's a very fair criticism of the film. It was a criticism a lot of people in the Arab world made. This film was banned in most Arab countries Mm. because of its portrayal of Arabian culture. Mm -hmm. And they did make the tribes much more primitive and barbarous than they actually were. They were much more disciplined troops than what we see in the film. I mean, in the film, they're basically the Dothraki. Right, they're just looting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Prince Faisal was actually a very cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote, European style leader. He was not the guy we meet in the tent. Right. Um, so that's that. I think that's all fair. But it's the Brits who are really the shits yeah. in this film. Claude Rains' character is just this quietly diabolical guy that's kind of pulling all the strings mm-hmm. and... And they're just lying. They're just lying to Lawrence. They're lying to the Arab leaders. They're lying to everybody. Right. To get what they want. To get what they want. And that that was all true. That was, they had been promising these people a united Arab state Mm -hmm. under control of Arab leaders. Promising them artillery when they had no intention (laughs) of arming them. That's where they draw the line is, (laughs) you know. They'll, they'll give them small arms so they can, you know, attack trains and stuff, but not give them any big weapons with which they might actually be able to keep the British out. Right. Well, and I think there's actually, um, after, I think, there's sort of this montage of Lawrence leading basically guerrilla warfare across the Middle East and detonating trains that are carrying, like, Turkish supplies and Turkish soldiers mm-hmm. and things like that. And so they would detonate the trains and then the what what was basically portrayed as a horde of uh, Bedouin tribes, you know, ransack the trains. They, you know, strip the jewelry off the people that are, mm-hmm. you know, dead in the train and everything like that. And then they leave. And I can't remember which character it was, but he says to Lawrence, you know, well, you know, this isn't working. Like you, we blow up the train, they take the loot and they leave. Right. And now you have no soldiers. Right. And then Anthony Quinn's character in some serious blackface <laughs> says, you know, he rationalizes it. Well, they got what they want. So they left. Right. And when you get what you want, you're going <laughs> right. to leave. And I feel like that's sort of 
a perfect encapsulation of colonialism is like you come in, you pillage, yeah. you get what you want, and then you leave, and then the mess is left here. Yeah. These these communities are left with. Okay, so we have to we have to talk about the two halves of this movie. Okay. Because I think if if the movie had ended at the intermission, which is after they take Akaba, mm-hmm. then it's a very different movie. Then it really is pro-colonialist, and it is this sort of white savior mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's his most triumphant moment, where he's united these tribes and he's led them into Akaba, which everybody said was impossible. That's the traditional Hollywood epic right there. Mm-hmm. But then the second half of the movie is really what makes this interesting, because we start to see the dark side of that, mm-hmm. where he has started believing his own press, his own hype. He, he's basically feeling like a god. Right. Um, and people are treating him like a god. They are. I mean, and and I think it's in the second half that we start to get a lot of very direct questions about identity and allegiance. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of times where someone asks Lawrence, in whose name do you ride? Yes. Who are you? And so there's this sort of constant push and pull between British Lawrence and, as they deem him later, Lawrence. Right ally to the Arab peoples. Um, That sequence where they're crossing the desert, and I believe it's called the Sun's Anvil, I think they refer to it, when they're on the long ride across the desert to Aqaba, and they end up losing one of the members of the tribe. Yes. And... They look up and realize the guy's falling off his camel somewhere. his camel's riding along. And everybody else is like, well, that sucks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He's dead. It doesn't matter. Like, we have to keep moving. We have to get across this desert or we're all going to die. It is written. It is written. And Lawrence will not accept that um, and says, you know, nothing is written, which is very, you know, white man thing to say. I'm just like, (laughs) I make my own destiny. Um, Damn the desert. So he turns back to go go back for this man. And we sort of follow him on his long ride. And then we're also following the guy that's been left behind as he is just like struggling to walk through the desert. Mm -hmm. And he saves him. And he comes back. And there's this moment where he is sort of officially accepted by the tribe and by Sharif Ali. They burn his, Sharif burns his uniform, his British uniform, and then gives him the white robes. And it's this moment of like baptism by desert and baptism by fire, which I thought, so this like renewal and rebirth for Mm him. I thought that was a really powerful moment of like, as as he sort of wrestles with these ideas of who he is and, and sort of who he's fighting for, I thought that was a really pivotal moment. Then we get that fantastic scene where he goes off by himself (laughs) To preen yes. in his new robes. He loves his new robes. And to admire himself. And he sort of dances around. Yes. And he pulls the dagger and he looks at himself he in admires the his image. mirrored surface of the dagger. Yeah. Yeah. There's another moment, going back to one of the train robberies, where the tribes are all celebrating because they have, you know, they've they've gotten this great loot. And the uh, journalist from the Chicago Courier is there taking photos and, you know, documenting the hero yes. for the folks back in America. I need a hero. That's what right. he said he came for. <laughs> Who understand wanting to get out from under the thumb of a colony, which I thought was interesting. And he totally puts on the performance. He jumps on top of the train and he's in his white robes and he's just sort of walking and preening around 
to the applause of everyone in the tribes and is, you know, having his picture taken. And there's this great shot. So he's standing on top of the train and the sun is behind him. Mm-hmm. So looking at him directly, you just see his shadow. It's just right. like a he's shadow totally of a man. So this idea of like, this is someone that no one knows. Like mm-hmm. you don't know his motives. You don't know who he's truly fighting for. You don't know anything about him. But he's become this sort of godlike character to all of these tribes and this this idea of an Arab freedom. I thought was a really powerful visual that's that sort of got at a lot of the themes of the film. There's another shot right after that where shooting from the other side of the train or shooting, I guess, sort of from on top of the train. And you don't see him at all. All you see is his shadow. Mm-hmm. On t- and they're following alongside. the shadow. And they're following the right. shadow mm-hmm. on the sand. Yeah, it's... This Fantastic. idea that they are they're, you know, lifting up and praising this phantom of yeah. a person that isn't really there. And the complexity of him is that he sort of knows that about himself. Mm-hmm. But he keeps getting caught up in it. Yeah. So you talked about his riding back to rescue Gassim, mm-hmm. his name is, um, the guy who fell off his camel. But then before they right before they go in to take Aqaba, there's a squabble between mm-hmm. the tribe. One of them kills a guy from the other tribe, and basically the two tribes are going to go to war. Right. The guy needs to be executed, and the only way to do that without causing a huge conflict is for Lawrence to right. be the one who executes Right, because he's a neutral him. party. So he volunteers to do that, and then he realizes that it's Gassim. This guy that he just this saved. This guy that he just went back and saved. So sort of is written. Yeah. <laughs> that's what... <laughs> Gassim's time was up. So. That's what Anthony Quinn's character says. He's one like, way yeah, or another, Gassim was, was coming out It was written after there. all. Yeah. And he shoots him. Mm-hmm. In fact, he shoots him about six times. Yeah. And after they take Aqaba, and Lawrence goes back to Cairo to report on this, and the British officers are all congratulating him, Alan B's congratulating him and saying, you know, basically, we'll give you whatever you want. Go back and do some more. He says he's not cut out for it. No. He tries to get out of it. So they killed two people. Yeah. But the problem is I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. He talks about executing him. And he's like, yeah, I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. You should not send me back there. That's the first time. And then that happens again later in the movie mm-hmm. where he tries to get out of this because he knows whatever's going on with him, it's not. Right. He's being corrupted in some way. He's being corrupted by it. His motives are not pure. There's a real dark side Mm -hmm. to this guy that all of this is bringing out. But he keeps getting caught back into it and he keeps buying his own height. So that by the time, and this is the second half, the beginning of the second half of the movie is when he's attacking those trains and things that you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's when he's on top of the train and they're all worshipping him like a god. And the journalist is interviewing him and he's... You know, the journalist says, what do these people want? He says, they want their freedom. And he says, I'm going to give it to them. Right. Arabia is for the Arabs now. Yeah. So he's he's totally feeding into that image and that self-image of himself as the Messiah mm-hmm. of these people. And that's true right up until that the rape scene, mm-hmm. until the point where he's captured. He, he volunteers to go into uh, Dera. I think the town mm-hmm. is. Yep. And Ali is like, you think you can pass for an Arab in an Arab town? And he's like, of course I can. Right. And he walks into the Arab town and he gets captured almost immediately. Yep. And whatever happens to him in there happens to him. And when he comes out, he's a broken man. Mm-hmm. And that's when he says to Ali, I'm not the Arab revolt. 
I'm not even an Arab. And Ali is throwing his words back at him where he says a man can be whatever he wants to be. And Lawrence is like, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought that was true, but it's not true. Right. Look at this. I'm white. Right. Like that's what defines who I am. And then that's the point where he goes back to Cairo and he tries to get out of it again. And he tells Alan B, like, I'm done with this. And Alan B, I think that's when we start to realize what an asshole Alan B is. Because Alan B starts rebuilding the myth, mm-hmm. seeing how it's useful. He says, you know, you're the most extraordinary man I've ever met. Right. The history books are going to sing of you when no one knows who I am. And he just starts building this guy back up to go back in and do this some more. Yeah, the British are assholes. <laughs> I mean, well, at that point, and I mean, well, quite frankly, for the entire time that he's been engaged in this campaign, he has been an instrument of the British government. And so, you know, mm-hmm. you got to keep putting your instrument back and it's like, I need you to finish the job. And yeah. so I'm going to do whatever, say whatever I need to say so that you can get back in there and finish the job because I don't want to have to do it and get my hands dirty and, you know, compromise myself in any way. And that's at, right right before the in, the intermission. It's Alan B. and Claude Rain's character talking. And Alan B. says something like, well, I can say I was following orders. Right. He doesn't have that excuse. Right. He's riding the whirlwind. And that's, this guy is useful because he's a loose cannon mm-hmm. and they can just go send him off and have plausible deniability if something goes wrong. And yeah, they just send him out to destroy and be destroyed. Right. And that sort of gets back to sort of, you know, the language that Lawrence and a lot of the other British use when they're talking about, you know, the Arab peoples is, you know, barbarous. And so you, you when, when you get to the point where, you know, Lawrence is essentially just executing people because he can... Right. And Alan B and the other sort of top brass are enabling this execution and encouraging the execution. And it's like, okay, well, who actually, who, who is actually barbarous and who is motivated by greed and who is motivated by cruelty? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a descending staircase of mm-hmm. into damnation that he just keeps going down. It's after that time when they send him back, that's when we get into the really dark stuff. Yeah. That's when his... His army, as Ali complains, is almost all like mercenary right. guys now. Right. They're not in it for the cause. any noble reasons. Right. They're not in it for a free Arab state. They're in it for money and cruelty. And that's when they come across that platoon of Turkish soldiers mm-hmm. who have just massacred a village. And Ali's like, you know what? Let's go around them. Yeah. We don't we don't need to deal with this. Let's just go around them. And that's the most famous scene in the movie, the no prisoners scene Mm -hmm. when Lawrence just cuts loose and they just slaughter these people and it's brutal and it's cruel and it's excessive. And you can see it all play out on Peter O'Toole's face. It's his trauma from Dara and everything that happened there and everything he's been through. And it just all explodes in this act of, just unspeakable brutality. Mm-hmm. And you get a callback to the scene earlier when he first gets his white robes and he looks in the the dagger yes. and admires his image. And then after he's, you know, he and his, his mercenaries have slaughtered this village, he looks in his bloody dagger yeah. again and sort of sees himself just covered in blood and just... Sees what he has become. Right. And it's just a moment of breakdown. And that's, that's the breaking point with Ali. That's mm-hmm. he and Ali never have the same relationship after that. Mm-hmm. It's the breaking point with the reporter Mm -hmm. who just walks in and says, Jesus wept 
when he sees the carnage that they've just laid out. But again, Lawrence also knows all this about himself. And that's that's what Ali says when he walks away. He says, he says, if I fear him who love him, how must he fear himself who hates himself? Mm. But it's like Lawrence is is just trying to salvage something from this that's going to restore him to being the messiah figure Mm -hmm. so he you know that's when they they ride to damascus ahead of allenby and the british forces and take it over i mean he takes damascus and he gives it to the arabs Mm -hmm. and he sets up the arab council and it fails miserably it fails miserably (laughs) because they can't get along and they can't get anything done and and even after that, he's he's sitting by himself in the empty council chamber. You know, it's like King Arthur after the round table has fallen <laughs> apart. And that's when we get the whole the thing with the hospital, the Turkish hospital yes. that they had completely failed right. to take care of anyone there. Yeah. And we get that fantastic scene with the medical of the British medical officer coming through and just yelling at him and being like, How could you let this happen? Right. And he slaps him and he calls him a filthy little wog. <laughs> that guy we had seen at the very beginning of the movie. I don't know if you realize that was the same guy. I don't think I realized it until this viewing. At Lawrence's funeral, the reporter oh. the reporter says something condescending about Lawrence, mm-hmm. and this guy comes up to him and says, "How dare you say that Lawrence was a great man? I shook his hand once." Mm-hmm. That's the medical officer. Okay. He didn't realize that was Lawrence when he slapped him in the hospital. And then a couple scenes later, Lawrence is in his British clothes, and, he and the his guy hand. comes up and says, "I just want to shake your hand." Yeah. It's the same guy. He just oh, didn't wow. realize. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So again, we see all the sides of this legend composed in this one guy that had these different reactions to him. Right. All right. Well, you want to talk about Peter O'Toole? I love Peter O'Toole. And like I said earlier, I think he's brilliant. And this was such a complex character because, again, you know, there isn't much in the way of dialogue. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was just sort of his physicality and his, his, his face and... There's a great scene when he first meets Prince Faisal and and Sharif Ali is there and uh, another British soldier is there and they're essentially <laughs> trying to tell Prince Faisal what he needs to do in order to sort of advance mm-hmm. the British agenda. And, you know, Lawrence is pushing back on the other British soldiers' suggestions, basically saying, if those aren't your priorities, there's no reason why you should be fighting for the British. Like, you're basically going to just be subs- a, a subset of the British army. Right. There's no reason for you to do that. You should be going out on your own and just taking over these cities. And he leaves the tent and just sort of walks off into the desert alone. And we just see him sort of pacing and you mm-hmm. see his face sort of just scrunched up in thought and he's sitting in the sand and he has this crazed look on his face and you can see that he's just come to a conclusion about something and it's basically i have to do this like i have to lead the arab freedom and he said there's no dialogue he says nothing it's just all in his face and he stands up with purpose and then he's off and that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna go and i'm gonna take akaba and that will sort of be the start of my giving Arabia to the Arabs. Right. So there were lots of moments like that where, you know, he didn't have any dialogue. It had to all be done in his face. And his eyes just are particularly piercing, set against his tan skin, set against the sand and the sort of brown and golden tones of the environment. So, yeah, I mean, I thought he was great. I thought he was brilliant. To me, that is what makes this such an amazing movie is that, I mean, it seems like the most external Mm -hmm. story and yet everything important is happening internally. Mm -hmm. Everything important is happening 
on O'Toole's face, in his eyes, in how he carries himself. That's the real story. Mm -hmm. That's what I said when we started, that it's this really very intimate, disturbingly intimate portrait of this man. It is. In this huge epic epic with a cast of thousands. There are lots of little things. Like, he's never quite standing up straight. Mm-hmm. He's always like, sort of slightly hunched over, and unless he's performing, and then right. when he's like when he was on top of the train, he's very broad street and erect and sort of grand. But for you know, if he's just walking around, if he's just being, yeah, he's just slightly slumped over, and there was just a lot of sort of physical things like that that were. And that I think that, and I'm not an expert, but from what I've read, that perfectly captures the contradictions of the mm. real T. Lawrence, mm-hmm. because people describe him as shy. Mm-hmm. And self-effacing and quiet and yet simultaneously grandiose and self-promoting. complex. Right. Yeah. The real journalist that the character in the film was based on was a guy named Lowell Thomas. And he had the famous line, he said Lawrence had a a real flair for backing into the limelight. Mm. That that was his gift that he... Didn't didn't appear to be seeking the limelight, but would just sort of... Always found it. Yeah, somehow always found it. Speaking of eyes, there was a scene in Dura, the scene in Dura, where so Lawrence is captured and Sharif Ali is outside, you know, waiting for Lawrence to be released. Mm-hmm. And it's at nighttime and it's dark. And there is a scene where Sharif Ali sort of faces the camera. And all you see is like a sparkle of his, like they, it looks almost alien. It's a very weird effect because it's almost like lights in his eye. Like just that little pinprick just of light. Just a little pinprick of light. Mm-hmm. And he and he's but he he's totally in shrouded in shadow. And I feel like it happened one other time. But there are like a lot of shots like that that I just thought were really powerful. Playing with shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, so we have to talk about the camera work in this movie. Yeah. And just the it really is breathtaking. It is. It's it is. I mean the first shot when we first meet Lawrence, he's doing the trick with the matches. So he's, you know, lighting a match and then putting yeah. it out with his finger. <laughs> and he's he does it once and uh the last time he does it he blows out the match and yeah. and then it's immediate cut to the desert and the sun that's, is rising over the uh desert horizon. It's a beautiful That's the most famous edit moment. in movie history right there. It's really brilliantly done. Yeah. And then I mean just the way the use of the desert horizon is just yes. spectacular throughout the desert and the sky mm-hmm. dividing the frame and the haze of the heat so it's that sort of wavy sort of effect yeah. on the horizon I would I would love someday to go back and study just that in this film mm-hmm. how lean uses the sky and the horizon line mm-hmm. because sometimes it runs right exactly halfway down the film mm-hmm. sometimes you get more sky sometimes you get more sand and it seems very purposeful it does it's I can't sit down and analyze it <laughs> right now but it's well and I can see why I mean that alone is enough of a reason to see it at the very least big screen and then the 70 millimeter mm-hmm. um that scene where the first time that we meet Sharif Ali, Ali yeah. you know, Lawrence and his then still alive guide <laughs> are drinking from a well that ends up being owned by Sharif Ali. And they see, you just see this little speck of black yeah. on the horizon. And as they are watching the speck get bigger, we as the audience are yeah. watching the speck get bigger and sort of come into clarity and trying to figure out, oh, is it Turks? Oh, is it a Bedouin? Oh, yeah. like, what is this? Um, and it just gets, and it just sort yeah. of manifests like a phantom out of the horizon. And I just, 
it's a wonderful brilliant. shot. It's they they invented a lens to do that shot. Mm. The lens, I think it's a 422 millimeter lens or something. It's it basically looks like a fire hose. Mm-hmm. And I think they said it's never been used since. Like it was that oh, was wow. the, it was invented for that one shot. <laughs> But it's such a brilliant shot. And that actually is specifically the scene Ebert mentioned when he talked about why you have to see this in mm. 70 millimeter. Because he said on a television, you can't even make out right. what's coming towards you. Right. That depth doesn't read. It just turns into meaningless noise mm-hmm. on a television. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, and this is a heretical statement, <laughs> I think it is less true now than it was when Ebert was writing that. I think... Technology's just gotten better. Technology has gotten better. I mean, he wrote that, I think, in 2001, and that's DVD technology had barely mm-hmm. broken through at that point. He was probably describing the experience of watching this film on a VHS yeah. cassette. HD TVs had not been invented. Mm-hmm. So I think now it's still not as good as 70 millimeter, but I don't want anyone to, out there to feel like they can't watch this movie right. unless they see it in 70 millimeter. I don't think that's true. Yeah. I also just think I, watching it, had to keep reminding my, and it's something that's come up a lot as we've talked about these older movies in this podcast, we are so spoiled now in what we see on a screen, you know, what we see on any given screen, if we're watching Game of Thrones, for example, 90% of it is CGI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. There's beautiful shots. There's beautiful epic battles, casts of thousands, mm-hmm. you know explosions, all of that, that you almost have to remind yourself watching a movie like this, that if they wanted a thousand people in the shot, they had to put a thousand people in the shot. Mm -hmm. And that shot of Ali riding out of the desert, again, they had to set that up and create a lens to capture it and have him ride out of that mirage like that. Right. That's not saying that there wasn't some smoke and mirrors and stuff, you know, involved in making movies even back then, but it's all... No, it's, it's a all technical real. achievement. No, it's, yeah. It's... You know, and again, it had, they had to set this all up in this incredibly hostile environment <laughs> and make it work. And it's just, it, it really is just a staggering achievement when you sit there and remember that this is all, everything you see on screen is happening on screen. Right. All right. Anything else? That last scene after he is beaten and raped in Dara, mm-hmm. he goes back to Cairo to talk to Alan B and, you know, make that sort of final plea right. to be taken out. And he puts on, he gets a borrowed uniform that's sort of oversized, doesn't quite fit him right. And he's talking to Alan B. His back is to Claude Rains. And as he's begging that he be taken out of this and, you know, he needs to go home and, and sort of banging on the desk, making his plea, the wounds from the beating at Dara uh, yeah. start to bleed through the yeah. uniform and Claude Rain sees it and sort of draws Alan B's attention to it. And it's sort of, I think it's probably the first time that they go, Oh, something is maybe really wrong yeah. here. But cause I think there's a lot, there's some stuff going on with is a man, his uniform and sort of how Lawrence's uniforms throughout the film sort of hint at where he is mentally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the pristine white Sharif robes that he gets at the beginning of the film, you know, after the the slaughter are just soiled with dirt 
and yeah. blood and, yeah. and just all kinds of unspeakableness. And then at, to sort of beg to be, you know, allowed back into civilian life, essentially, he puts on the uniform of, you know, the respectable British soldier, but then he's bleeding through them. Yeah, and it doesn't fit him right. And it doesn't and fit him not, right. Yeah. And yeah, that's good. So this idea of like... It's all a presentation. It's all a put on. And in a very literal way, it is what he puts on and what happens to those those garments through his journey. There's transitional stuff in the beginning of the first half of the movie, too, where he first shows up. He's in his British uniform mm-hmm. with a British hat. And then in the section in between, before he gets his robes, we there's shots of him riding. He's wearing his British uniform, but he's got the thing on his yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. Like, like an Arab rider. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you call that thing. I don't either. We should probably know that. But, but he, he's like right. made a makeshift mm-hmm. one to keep the sun off him. So there are those like transitional stages to his identity that speaks through the clothes. Right. I also think another thing that I'd like to go back and look at is the color. Mm-hmm. Going back, talking about those those sky and horizon mm-hmm. scenes, they're very blue in the first half of the film. And in the second half of the film, they start to get more desaturated. Yeah. They start to get more gray. And it's not artificial. It doesn't look, you know, it's not noticeable, yeah. mm-hmm. but it's just there's, there's subtle stuff going on with the cinematography there that yeah. just, again, speaks to his internal state. I mean, the question of what he was really doing is an interesting one mm-hmm. because... Like, you know, you said he's he's working for the British and then his own his own story was that he supported the Arab state and he didn't know about the plans mm. for Britain and France to basically divvy up the region. Mm-hmm. He didn't know anything about that mm-hmm. accord that had been reached until way late in the process. And that when he did know about it, he told Prince Faisal about it, mm-hmm. which was basically treason right. at that point. Whether, again, whether any of that is true is something that everybody argues about. But I, I thought it was interesting. In, an article for the an article for Smithsonian Magazine, Scott Anderson wrote a piece and he interviewed Sheikh Alatun, the grandson of one of Lawrence's allies in that campaign. And the Sheikh said, some people think he was really trying to help the Arabs, but others think it was all a trick that Lawrence was actually working for the British Empire all along. Anderson writes, when I press for his opinion, the sheet grows slightly discomforted. May I speak frankly? Maybe some of the very old ones still believe he was a friend of the Arabs, but almost everyone else, we know the truth. Hmm. Even my grandfather, before he died, believed he had been tricked. So he he did become this legendary beloved figure there, but then there was a reassessment of that based on how everything turned out. That tends to happen with our heroes. Yeah. Okay, final thoughts? Glad you saw it. Glad you saw it in 70 millimeter big screen. I am glad I saw it. I am glad I saw it in 70 millimeter. I wish it had not been 90,000 degrees, (laughs) but yes, I am glad that I saw it and that I saw it. And it was good to see it at Music Box 70 millimeter. Like that's just a cool experience. It is. Yeah. Would you watch it again? Probably not. Uh, (laughs) It's yeah. It's, I mean, I I felt those four hours and, Mm. but again, I go back to, there's nothing that I would cut out of it. So I don't know, you know, where I land on that, but that's not one that I'm just going to pull out and watch on a Saturday afternoon or anything. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we watch yet another epic adventure about a beleaguered people yearning for freedom. Only this time, they're bunnies. 
we're going to be watching the 1978 animated classic Watership Down. I don't know anything about that. You don't know anything about it. You've never no. heard of it. I don't think I have. It's about bunnies. Is it like um, Ricky Ticky Tabby? <laughs> it's kind of like Ricky Ticky Tabby, <laughs> yes. I love Ricky Ticky Tabby. I do too. <laughs> Maybe we'll watch that too. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Follow us on Twitter at freerangecritic. Send an email to michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com. Or leave us a review on iTunes. In any of these places, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means making your partner watch four-hour movies they really, (laughs) really don't want to watch. Shout out to Music Box. (laughs) 